there. This is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley. It's a podcast about making things up and making things happen. I love talking to creative people. And today I'm talking to one of my dream guests. He's somebody that worked on two pop culture institutions that have been very formative in my life. His name is Dick DiBartolo. And not only was he a writer for Mad Magazine for 50 years, uh, he also worked on The Match Game for many years. And it was actually... Dick, who came up with the idea of doing more kooky questions, which saved the show and led to it becoming the match game that we all know and love, which I started doing as the mismatch game in 2000. It's been a huge part of my life. So between Mad and Match Game, I had to talk to this guy. He was right in my pop culture sweet spot. And uh, my friend Doug Prinzavalli had connected with him and connected us and we made it happen. In fact, I talked to him for so long that we're going to divide it into two episodes. But it's not going to be Match Game episode and Mad Magazine episode because we kind of go back and forth, which was what Dick's life was like. So uh, we'll just split it wherever it makes sense to split it. But it was one of my favorite interviews ever. So I'm very excited to share that with you. But before we get to that, I want to let you know that this podcast is brought to you by Cheer Detergent. No, it's not. I don't have any sponsors. I just do it. Um, But there are two ways that you can help me keep it going. You can go to DennisAnyone.net and you can donate to my virtual tip jar or you can become a subscriber to DNR Studios. I'm part of a group of shows under the DNR banner and for a monthly subscription, you get my show early and you get all these other great LGBTQ shows. So check that out at DNRStudios.com. I also want to get a plug in for an evening of short films that I'm going to be attending in Palm Springs, November 2nd. It's called Do These Shorts Make Me Look Gay? I'm going out there to support a movie called If We Took a Holiday that I made with my friends Glenn Gaylord and Nadia Ginsburg um, just about 10 years ago. So it's showing in this evening of shorts in Palm Springs. There's all these other fun gay shorts that are going to be there. Craig Chester is going to be there. A friend of mine, Cameron Thrower. Uh, Lots of cool, fun filmmaker types. And you can learn about that at eventbrite.com. I think there might still be tickets left. All right, that's enough for the plugs. Here is part one of my interview with my hero, Dick DiBartolo. Joining me now from Manhattan, it's Dick DiBartolo from Match Game and Mad Magazine, The Giz Whiz. He does a lot of different things. He does them well. Welcome, Dick. <laughs> Thanks. It's fun to be here. I'm so excited to be here. My friend Doug Prinzavalli turned me on to you and connected us, and you worked for a very long time on two pop culture institutions that were so formative to my own life, um, The Match Game and Mad Magazine. So I was like, the, the, the overlap of those two projects and that you worked on both of them for so long, um, I feel like you shaped my life in a way. Like I'm hosting The Mismatch Game tonight at the Gay and Lesbian Center. Uh, in a few hours after we finish this, I'm going to go host it. And we've been doing it for 20 years. And uh, I, I feel like your spirit's going to be with me because from what I understand... You started working on Match Game, but the questions didn't get wacky until later, and that was because of you. Is that right? Yeah, it was. Uh, I was hired to write Match Game, and Match Game was originally uh, name a person who appears on on bills, name something you can do with an egg, and it was a one year contract. And ten months in, uh, Mark Goodson of Goodson Todman fame called me and they said, "Listen, um, NBC's not." Uh, renewing the show. So I know you have two months of shows to do, but if you want to look around for more work, uh, you can start doing that. And then over the weekend, I thought, you know, 
I work for MAD. There should be some silly way to uh, write questions instead of these dreary questions I've been writing. And and then I so the first thing I ever wrote was instead of name something you pour syrup on, which right. would be a match game question. Right. Uh, I made it Mary, and I think it was gravy. Mary liked to pour gravy on John's blank. <laughs> uh, so that was the first thing. Uh, right. And then Monday, I went into Goodson, and I had like five of these, and I read them, and he, he did like you. He laughed, and he said, well, they'll be funny, but what will they say? I said, they'll think it's, it's terrible things, <laughs> and, uh, and they'll say meatloaf and mashed potatoes. Right. And he said, well, they can't cancel it twice. Do what you want. <laughs> so I spoke to uh, Jean Kobelman and I said, you know, Mark is into doing this. And she said, oh, well, let's let's first couple of shows. We'll just do every other question, a silly one. And the ratings started to pick up. And, and a month later, Goodson called me in again. He said, listen, they're in for another year. So just keep writing those questions. And that went on and on. And. Uh, after a while, I think it ran seven years in New York. Right. And then Goodson had another meeting with Goodson and he said, listen, uh, don't use a year in any question because there's something new coming called syndication. Right. And we are going to, uh, start syndicated match game. Um, and he said, it's probably going to be a year or two. So pick another show you want to be on and just tell them I said you're hired. <laughs> so um I I went over to Family Feud for a while. I worked on What's My Line for a while. Um and then when Match Game came back, they moved it to Hollywood right. with the new format with six six people and only two contestants as opposed to the first six years which was four contestants and two celebrities. And Goodson said, you know, I'll move you to California. I said, Mark, I don't want to move to California. I'm a born in Brooklyn and I live in Manhattan. My friends are here. My boat's here. I don't want to move. And he said, that's fine. I'm keeping my, my New York offices. And he said, but as long as there's a match game, you will get a check. Wow. Um, so then. There were three, I think three new writers headed up uh, in L.A., and I just sent stuff in from uh, the New York office. Now, how did you do it back then? There wasn't email. Was it faxes yet, or what was going on? Uh, it was fax, and we had something called the Daily Pouch. <laughs> I love the Daily Pouch. Who doesn't daily love pouch, the Daily Pouch? Yeah, the Daily Pouch was a pouch that FedEx picked up every day at six o'clock. Wow. And, and Ricky used to run the rail room said one day of the week, the pouch contained coming the inbound pouch contained Mark's dirty laundry. <laughs> Literally. He had, he had a French laundress here who he loved. And so, his laundry, and then I guess one day the pouch was fresh French laundry back to Goodson. <laughs> I love it. You know, as a kid, I loved game shows. I still do. And I saw Mark Goodson and Bill Todman on everything. What were they like as men? Were they, did they have different personalities? Was like good cop, bad cop? What was their dynamic? Uh, well, first of all, 
Howard was the businessman. Right. Um, and rarely showed up for any sort of uh, production meetings. Right. And toward the end, I, I believe they didn't even like each other. Right. That happens a lot. Yes, yes. Because I remember the first time I realized it is we were in a meeting and and Todman had come into this uh, run-through meeting and Mark said, any questions? And Bill raised his hand and Mark said, okay, no questions. The meeting's over. And I thought, ooh, shade. That was interesting. Yeah. So that was it. They yeah. were, they were, uh, Bill had very little to do with anything I right. did. Everything I did was with Goodson. And how did you first start working with them? How did you get that first gig foot in the door? Uh, a guy named Bob Noer. I had, I knew Bob Noer and he had, um, just been hired at Goodson Todman or maybe he was there for a year or two. I don't know. And, and he said, he called me and he said, listen, they're doing this new show called Match Game and they need a question writer. And, you know, if you're interested, come on over and we'll show you the game. And I went over and they had just started. And I, I think it was, boy, it might be uh, Wayne. I forgot, I even forgot his, his, his first name. He had just come to the office at Goodson and said, I have an idea for a show. Uh, named something about an elephant. And then everybody in the room, you know, said it's gray, it's a trunk, it has right. big ears. And he said, and then we'll give prizes if, if you match the people. Um, and, and so that's how I started writing those, those kind of questions. And then mad, I'd been reading mad. And after reading it a while, I thought I love reading it, but I want to write it. And, um, I, bought a book called The Writer's Yearbook because I didn't know about submitting to a magazine. Right, and you're in high um, school at this point, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and then I, I never realized that really important magazines, you could not send them something. It was would only be accepted if an agent sent it. Right. Uh, but then there was a part of the book that were people that would read anything. Unfortunately, <laughs> Mad was on that list. <laughs> um, so I, I sent my uh, script in, and this had stated that you must put in a self-addressed stamped envelope. So I did that, and oh, a month or so after I sent it in, I got back my own magazine, my own uh, envelope. Uh, very depressed. And right, you're thought, like, oh, they sent it back. Your heart sinks. Yeah, yeah. So I opened it up later. I, I actually just left it on my desk, and then I thought, well, maybe it's almost a try again. And I opened it up, and and um, there was a sheet of cardboard in there, and written on the cardboard, it said, "Ha ha ha! Thought this was your script being rejected. We bought it. Stapled to this cardboard is a check for a hundred bucks." This is back in the 60s. That's that a ton of money in the, at that a time. A ton of when, money, I know. I mean, gosh, I, I would yeah. do a magazine gig for that now. I couldn't get a magazine gig for that now. <laughs> That's amazing. That must have felt yeah. like the ultimate lottery ticket or the windfall. Yeah, exactly. And it was signed Nick Meglin, and, and he said, and please call us because we want to talk to you about writing more stuff. And that turned into 
being in every issue of Mad for 50 years. Incredible. Would you work in the office or were you always a freelancer? You know what? I, 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 I was a, a freelancer for a very long time. And then, um, Bill said, you know, why don't you come on staff? And I said, well, you know, I don't want to be here all. He said, no, you'll be creative consultant. Just think of ways to promote Mad that because we don't have a PR agency. And he said, you can work a day a week or two half days or whatever you want. And the great thing was Goodson, uh, Todman was 53rd and Park and Med was 52nd and Madison. So they were literally two short blocks apart. So I could run back and forth. It was great. You were it running back and forth between my two childhood dream jobs. It's, it's <laughs> yes. incredible to think about. You sent in a script from what I understand. It was like a commercial parody. When you write scripts like that for Mad, what do they look like on a page? Because you're not doing the visuals, but you want to indicate the visuals. What do they look like? You know, it, it, the top of the, the top of the, if it's a three panel satire, it says panel one, interior of a supermarket. We see people walking around. We see a guy with a microphone and then it, then it'll say guy with microphone says this. So they're like uh, almost like screenplays. Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. Interesting. Yeah. And then when I get into doing the movies, uh, you do exactly the same thing. You do, um, the splash. Yeah. Uh, which, which the splash explains every character. I never, um, I've never heard the term splash before. So what does yeah, that they're mean? Called, it's called the splash means it's usually a full page. Like Tom, 30s, ambitious. Yeah. So yeah. Like yeah. Well, you, know, you know, like, and then occasionally, you know, I said for, I even forgot, I think it was, one of my favorite satires of writing was to take off on, on Sully, the movie with a plane that went down on the Hudson. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I said, a classic, you know, a comedy classic. Yeah. Can we do a two page splash, two thirds of a splash? Because we need panels underneath. Otherwise the satire would be endless. Yeah. Um, and, and so yeah, a splash is everybody in the movie introducing themselves because a lot of the times we did R-rated movies, right? And the you know, and that was one of the great email, well, not emails. We used to get mail, mail. <laughs> was oh, I love you, mad satires because they wouldn't let me in that movie, or my parents wouldn't let me go to that movie. But because of the satire, I pretty much know what the movie's what about. Um, yeah, I loved Mad Magazine as a kid. I remember when it would come, what it meant to me. My question is, who was mad for? Because I was like a kid, like, you know, middle school, and I loved it. But it felt like sophisticated, grown-up humor. Like, I felt like I felt smarter because I was into it. So who was it for, if that makes sense? Well, the interesting thing is Mad was owned at some point by Warner Brothers. Um, and Warner Brothers kept saying to Bill you need to do a reader's survey. And Bill said, I don't, I don't want to know who <laughs> buys mad. He said, what if we, what if we find out that our biggest audience is 12 year olds? Are we going to write for 12 year olds? He said, no, we write. I just want the writers to write to be funny. And right. I don't care if a kid has to go get an encyclopedia because they don't know that word or they don't know who that person is. He said, as long as we sell issues, 
I don't care who's buying them. You know, if it's one person buying a million issues, that's fine. Um, that's amazing so nev- to me that you guys didn't really know who was. No, no, no. We know we we sort of know now, right? Because it it turns out that it was mostly mostly male, yeah, uh, up till about sixteen or seventeen, in which they would move on to Playboy. Uh, but then we have a, an awful lot of people coming back where fathers yes. want to introduce Mad to their son. And also uh, almost everybody in show business got mad or in the movie business or the TV business right? because they wanted to see who was satirizing and, and, and read the satires. I interviewed Viggo Mortensen in 1997 for Movie Line magazine. I was doing a lot of celebrity profiles back then. And he said one of the highlights of his career was being satirized in G.I. Jane. And he sent me the issue in the mail after the interview. And it was it ended up being part of the piece. And it was like a badge of honor to him. I bet you got that a lot. We did. I, actually, on on uh, The Tonight Show, uh, Michael Fox was a guest. And Johnny Carson said, when did you realize you had really become – a celebrity. And he said, when Mort Drucker drew my picture for the cover of Mad Magazine, I knew I hadn't made it. And I was thinking, that <laughs> was that the great compliment? I forgot what movie he was in. He just, there was a big hit, whatever the movie Probably was. Probably Back to the Future, maybe? Probably, yes. That was his big breakout? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he knew he made it. But Mad Magazine had teeth. It was smart. It was a little edgy, but it was, there was a good naturedness to it. I don't think anyone ever felt burned by it. It never felt like it was causing a scandal or, or a joke went too far, right? It never felt like it. Yeah. Well, we never did religion. Yeah. Why? We how never, did you walk that line? You know what? There were no, there were no particular standards at Mad. You, you just, there was no political point of view of Mad. Right. It was just, the whole thing was, uh, just be funny. The only, the only time, um, we got, I guess you could call it a complaint is I was, one of the great things is being, doing match game and I would meet celebrities. Um, I had just done loused up in space yes. and we had, Instead of um, lost in space. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and what was it? Jane, what was the, the star of that show? Um, um Jane Meadows? No. No, June Lockhart. June Lockhart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and June Lockhart was on Match Game. Okay. And I said, you know, I did the takeoff and I said, it's in the issue that's just coming out. I said, uh, on my lunch hour, I'll run over to Mad and I'll get you a copy. Um, and she said, oh, that'd be great. And during one of the breaks, she read it and she said, do you know one of the writers over there? I said, no, why? She said, because your satire is very similar to a script I have that we're going to start shooting in a month or so. And and it was all about that they land on a planet where everything is supersized. Like someone said, oh, my God, look at the size of that watermelon. And the other says, watermelon, this is a pea. (laughs) Uh, So, Uh, and then, um, but, but Alan Alder, we were, he, we, I was working on to tell the truth and Alan Alder said, you work at med, right? And I said, yes. And he said, you know, I, uh, I, I, I think you guys did a disservice to mash. Oh, wow. Uh, 
and, and I said, I said, Alan, I, I, I didn't write it, but let me tell you about doing mad satires of comedies. The reason mad does them is because they are outrageously popular because mash is already funny. The writer has to sort of make up problems that probably don't exist in order to get some kind of a joke that you guys haven't done. Right. And I said, the fact that it's in mad people would, you know, people on, on sitcoms would be killed to be in mad and, and it's no put down of the show. It's just that we only do uh, shows that Nielsen has in the top 10 and you're always in the top 10. And the re- that's the reason that we did it. And he said, Oh, okay. Okay. Oh, okay. I'm so glad I spoke up. And, and now I see you guys aren't out to be mean. You're just trying to get five pages out of something that's already funny. So yeah. Where did you yeah. meet him? Where did you encounter him? He, he was, he was a, a guest on, um, um, to tell the truth. He was one of the panelists. I just love how both of these jobs sort of interact with each other. And oh my gosh, it's 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 incredible! What a life! I'm I just I getting goosebumps thinking about it. I remember <laughs> specific movie parodies; they were my favorite. And I'm gonna I'm gonna say some and see if you got you you probably wrote them. Um, the poop side down adventure was the side oh, adventure. I definitely wrote that. Yeah, and I <laughs> I love it. And I love the way the intro would lead into the the, the parody title. And I also remember. When you did Dallas, the the um, J.R. Ewing thing, and it was like they want to numb us, to deadness, to dull us. And I think yes. as a kid, I think I I felt smart reading it because of the wordplay. Also, it was a little bit, um, you know, making fun of how seriously everyone took themselves. And there's a joke in the Shining parody that I remember to this day, and it was edgy for me as a kid. And it was at the end of the Shining parody. It's Shelley Duvall and the boy. And I think the boy says, what are we going to do, mom, now that, you know, dad's, what are we going to do? And Shelly goes, well, I think we'll both have to get jobs. You may have to get a paper route and I may have to sell my body. And then the little boy says, gee, I'll feel funny making more money than you. And I still think that's one of the funniest jokes ever. And I, I can still remember, I can remember what the panel looks like. I don't know. And it was for a kid my age, that's grown up sex joke, comedy, like, I don't know. I think it really... That kind of voice really was formative for me. Yeah. And you know, I can't, I think Lou Silverstone might have written Dallas. Yeah. I'm not sure if I did Shining. It's very funny because once you do a couple of hundred satires, <laughs> you're, you're really not even sure. Nick Meglin, who became co-editor with John Vaccaro, he would say, that was such a funny thing you did. And I said, Nick, I think you wrote that. <laughs> he goes, no, I'm sure you wrote. Well, uh, yeah, you so, guys, but but in the Dallas satire, which uh, I, I did not write, she is playing tennis the day after somebody dies, right? And and they say, you know, so and so just died yesterday. And she said, well, my tennis outfit is black. So. <laughs> 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 these things still make me laugh it's really like uh, almost like uh in my dna or something from from reading so much of it um i also remember one dame at a time the one day at a time you you can't handle them all at once maybe you can handle them one dame at a time 
Um, you guys did first-run movies that were out in theaters. So as a writer and also for the artist, you couldn't just go get a VHS and look at it. Like, did you go to the movies and take notes? Like, how did you yes, yes. do first the first-run movies? It was very funny because people thought we always got invited to screenings. We did not get invited to screenings. Right. Uh, because they weren't sure if we were going to put the movie down or not, or they expected no matter what, they're going to make fun of the movie. So we, we were not invited to screenings. Um, and in a way, that was a good thing because, uh, if you would see the movie with an audience, you would make a note of scenes that the audience really reacted. Right. We have to do something with this moment. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. We have to include that. And so are you there with a notebook scribbling down? Yes. Yes. Um, and and, you know, I was always a gadget person and early on I found, uh, a pen with a built in uh, led light. So you could write in the dark. Oh, very clever. And we would sit, we would, and often went with the two editors, uh, Nick Megan and John Vicar. And we just sit in the back row where we could whisper to each other and write you know, lines as, as as the movie's unfolding. And what um, about the artists? What would they do? The artists back then, um, Amy was in charge of keeping a file of a picture of every celebrity. And she would cut out every article about the movie we were satirizing so that they could send the artist photos of them in the costume. Right. Or how they're dressed in the movie. All the stills from the movie. All the yes, all the stills. stills. Exactly. Yeah. <clears throat> now, because of Goodson Todman, uh, uh, I, I could write them and say, oh, you know, we're thinking of using so-and-so maybe as a mystery guest. Can you send me the press kit for the movie that they're currently in? <laughs> So they would send it to Goodson Todman, and then I would give it to Mad. Ah, so you were taking They were a giant help. Oh, so interesting. Because they would have 10 or 15 stills in there, um, including almost everybody in the cast down to some of the, you know, lesser players. Yeah, you wrote Um, a book about your days at Mad called um – Good Days and Mad. Yeah, it's called Good Days and Mad. I really uh, enjoy reading it. It's funny. Um, But what really comes across is the the character of your boss, Bill Gaines. It's kind of a love letter to him. And what a unique man he was. I had no idea as a fan. Oh, Bill Bill was incredible. And and I I always tell this story because it's it's just – Bill would often say, can you come on this interview with me because – I want company and you can make me laugh if it's deadly. <laughs> um, so on this interview and, and the woman early on in the interview said, so, so Bill, you're a ge- man is very successful and you're the genius behind it. And, and Bill said, no, I am not a genius. The, the writers and the artists are the people who make mad what it is. If I do anything, I provide the artists and writers, an atmosphere in which to thrive. And that, that I never forgot those words because he did that. You know, when the, a woman came up one day 
And we used to give, tour, if you could knock on the door, we'd give you a tour of the office. And this woman came in and looked around. She said, oh, my God. Oh, my God. This is this is what I hoped it would be. <laughs> I feared I was going to come in here and it was going to be thick carpeting and stainless steel railings and people at desks in suits. Uh, it wasn't that. It was even when Bill, the week after Bill died and Time Warner, Bill, Bill had the only Time Warner uh, division in its own office. Everybody was in a corporate building. And when Bill died, they came over, looked around and said, oh, my God, this looks like a high school newspaper. Exactly. And I thought, yeah, that's, that's the vibe we're going for. That's, that's a compliment. Yeah. And they said, uh, he, Bill put a, a, a wall between you and the corporate world. He's dead. The wall's coming down. It was one of the worst meetings oh. any of us had ever been in. It right. was sort of like we're ki- Bill's dead and we're going to kill everything he stood for. Oh, it's heartbreaking. So, There's yeah. a new sheriff in town and that might have worked then, but this is now. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, not exactly. only the personal loss, but knowing that this whole thing is going to be changing. Yeah. Um, the trips that he took you guys on are legendary. <laughs> I was reading about them in the book. There's, of course, the legendary one where you all, you all went to Haiti because there was one subscriber in Haiti that stopped. Yes, that's how it, sta- yes, that's yeah. how it started. Um, Bill did everything, read all the mail, wrote all the checks, uh, knew everything about the subscribers. And this one guy in Haiti did not renew. And that stuck out because no – yeah, what the fuck? Who, what's, who, what's the problem? Who's subscribing? Who's yeah. subscribing? Haiti, right? Um, and and Bill just got a crazy idea. He said, "Hey guys, let's go to his house and <laughs> and ask him to subscribe." And he said, "We'll stay in Haiti for a few days. We'll make it a vacation." What do you uh, remember about the man when you got there? The subscriber. Uh, the subscriber, you know what? I, I missed the first trip because oh, it was wow. only like seven people. Yeah. Um, but, but I always tell the story that the guy resubscribed and, and his neighbor did too. So for just $10,000, <laughs> Bill doubled his circulation in Haiti. Amazing. And then there was a trip yeah. to Thailand where there was all this sex stuff going on. Like, oh my God. Crazy. Yes. Yes. I went on, I think there were 20 trips. I went on, I missed the first and the last one. Yeah. The last one. Because Bill wasn't there. Yeah. Um, oh, we went to Thailand. We went to Japan. We went to Russia. Um, who was running the store when you guys were gone? Would, oh, would no, you time, you would time it so we don't have an issue. Yeah. 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 So, well, you know, Mad only came out eight times a year. So, so they during- would just do it b- b- between a, a break of, of when a month when there was no issue. Yeah. And Bill, Bill did everything and. We became so blasé about it. I remember once we were at, at uh, Kennedy. It was usually 25 people. And I said to Nick Megan, I said, do you know where we're going? <laughs> and and Nick said, I don't know, maybe Rome? Oh, guys, where are we going? And someone said, we're going to Sweden. Oh, okay. I guess we're Right. It was just that wild. All you did was show up. Just show up. Yeah. Buses met you everywhere. Buses took you on tours. Yeah. I I listened to a podcast where you were on it, and I guess you were in Tahiti or somewhere sitting next to Bill, and you're like, how'd you find this whole hell or something like oh, that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> that the, was your the, vibe. The thing with Bill, 
was to not appreciate anything he did. It was all underneath. Uh, one, one day he called me. Can, we, can you swear on your podcast? Absolutely, yes. Okay. One day I'm sitting in my office, my phone rings, and it's Gaines. And he goes, I'm not happy. And I go, what's wrong? And he goes, you haven't been mean to me all day. I said, you're so fucking stupid. Hang on. <laughs> so I, I go down to his office and I said, your brain is so shit filled that you don't know. I insulted you at 11. I insulted you at noon and I'm insulting you now, you jerk. And then I went back to the office. And then an hour later, the phone rang and Bill said, oh, I feel so much better. <laughs> it was just a thing between the two of us. But you uh, both played out your bits perfectly. Like you knew the lines. Oh, yeah. You both yes. knew your roles. And it was so satisfying, I imagine. Yes. Except we did what I will call incredible things for each other. Bill was a huge Statue of Liberty fan. And he blame, he he blames that on me because he ended up spending tens of thousands of dollars. He ended up owning three of the five original Bartoli models of what the Statue of Liberty might look like with the torch in one hand and the torch in the other hand and no, no torch. And he blamed that on me because I took him and Annie down to the Statue of Liberty at sunset and it was so striking that he started reading and buying everything he could on the Statue of Liberty. Um, so on to tell the truth, we had the curator of the Statue of Liberty. And, and I said, you know, I told him about Bill and what a fan and he owned all this stuff. I said, his lifelong dream is to get onto the torch. And he said, oh, that, he said that that. It's not going to happen. Yeah, said, nobody gets all, to do that. Yeah. Yeah. He said, because there's no stairs. It's a ladder and, and the torch moves a lot. And so anyway, I went, when I was up at Matt, I said, Bill, I almost got you up to the torch, but it didn't work out. And I told him what had happened. And he said, call the guy up, ask him if he has any kids. If he has kids, tell him if we can go up to the torch, I will give him one copy of every mayor, every issue Matt has ever printed. Wow. This is like, this is like <laughs> a big deal. So I called the guy up and I said, you know, I was talking to the publisher. You got kids? And he goes, I have a boy 12 and a boy 14. Sweet spot. I said, have I got a deal for you? Yes. So I tell him, and this is 50 years ago, which is why I tell this story. Um, probably everybody involved is dead. Um, and he said, okay, I can't resist. And he said, so take the last sightseeing uh, boat across. And he described some buildings and that we were to go behind the buildings. Wow. Like it was a wait. spy operation. Yeah. A spy operation. Yeah. And wait till the last, uh, uh, tourist boat leaves. And I said, just so I know how are we going to get off the Island? And he said, Oh, at 10 o'clock, there is a shift change. He said, because there are 
like four people who are on the island all the time and they'll change guards and you'll go back on the 10 o'clock boat. Um, so we met him and got out the keys. It was really thrilling, you know, and, uh, I think there's a picture of Bill in the arm, but, where the elbow is, it gets very thin and Bill was terribly overweight. And Bill said, listen, if I go through here, if I ever get stuck in here, we're all going to get arrested. He's going to be fired. You and Annie go to the top and, and just describe it. And that'll be good enough for me. He said, I, I am in the arm. And he said, that's a lifelong dream right there. So that's what we did. Annie and I went up and it's scary up there because it's very windy and the arm does move a lot. Yeah. Uh, the arm, it's a different arm now. I, I think it, they just had to stabilize it. Yeah. Um, so Annie was, yeah. Annie's Bill's wife. Yeah. 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 Yes. Annie was Bill's wife. Yeah. Incredible. So that was something I did for Bill. Yeah. Then, uh, Bill calls me one day and said, write down Right on your calendar, Saturday, whatever it was, September 30th. Um, and you'll be gone all day. And, um, I was dating Dennis back then. And, and I said, well, now I'm married to Dennis. I said, uh, can Dennis, is this something Dennis can come to? And Bill said, can Dennis come? I rather Dennis came <laughs> than you. Yeah. But it so happens. You in particular will like this, so you'll have to come. <laughs> I guess you are stuck with you, yeah. Yeah, so a uh, um, couple days before, Bill, it was just 12 of us, Bill said, go to Penn Station, and we're going to meet at Penn Station at 9 in the morning. All right, we meet him at 9 in the morning. And they announced the Metro Line to Boston, and Bill says, go down to the to – the, uh, platform do not get on the train so i'm i said bill what the fuck are we supposed to jump in at the last minute what he said no you'll be you'll be the most surprised so we hear a train whistle and out of the tunnel comes a tiny switch engine pushing an 1890s observation car Wow. And we can see three chefs on the back with the chef's hat. And Bill says, this is especially for you, Dick. We're hooking this up to the Metroliner and we're going to Boston. They're going to put the, this observation car on a siding. We're going to have a champagne brunch on the way up. You guys will have four hours to tour Boston. He said, I'm going to stay on the train because I don't want to walk around Boston. And at seven o'clock, they'll hook this up to the Metro line and back to New York. And we're going to have a seven course dinner with matching wines. Well, that was one of the most astounding days of my life. Was uh, it your birthday or anything or you just did it no, for you to be no, nice? It was just, it was just something. He wanted to do. And on Monday, I said, Bill, I, I cannot believe I, I, that was an astounding. I said, Bill, I, forgive me, but what what does something like that cost? And he said, well, the car is five grand and the car is housed in Virginia. And I think it was a thousand dollars 
to get it up to here. And then Amtrak charges uh, for every person who's involved on the train. I have to pay a first class fare for them each way. Wow. And that's that's their cost to, to tow it behind the uh, Metro liner. He says about 10 grand. <laughs> Incredible. Are there yeah. are there qualities in him that you try to incorporate into your own life? Are, are there times where you think, what would Bill do in this situation? Is oh, you know what? A, a role model it, to you? It, it, it's very funny. His kids are more that way. What would be uh, – yeah. Um, Kathy, one of his daughters came up for – the book show, um, because Bill, uh, Annie owns the rights now to Tales from the Crypt. And, and one of the kids came up for, uh, and she said, we'll come by for uh, breakfast, uh, with you and Dennis. I said, okay, great. Uh, what do you like? She said, oh, no, uh, we're gonna, we're gonna pick up stuff at Zay Bars, this very famous, uh, deli, uh, near where I live. And they came in with two big shopping bags. I said, are you guys kidding? She said, oh, we were doing WWBD. Right. I said, what's WWBD? What would Bill do? She said, whenever something comes up, it was the two daughters, whenever something comes up and we don't know what to do, we think, what would Bill do? And Bill would bring everything. So that's what we did. We brought everything. So that you don't have to worry, did we bring salmon? Did we bring, we brought everything. That's awesome. Um, uh, the thing is, is just let people be people, you know, uh, Bill really, he really was, a, he really knew how to handle artists and writers. Uh, because early on, Bill said to me, you know, I like it when you come into the office, you know, my door is always open. And I said, Bill, what are you talking about? Your door is always closed. And he goes, do you know why my door is always closed? I said, why? He said, because you guys come in late. You take incredibly long lunch hours. You leave early. He said, I, the magazine, as long as the magazine is funny, I don't care. But I don't want to see you leaving early, coming late. That's why my door is closed. Right. But he doesn't want to have to it notice in. it. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. But. Yeah, no, he was amazing. He was an amazing man. That's that's awesome. Uh, on YouTube, there's a tour you did of the New York office, and you're you're showing your office, and there's a uh, an illustration of you and Dennis, your husband and Mary. Yes, and it was sort of in the, one of the mad artists, and it was like I it got a little choked up looking at it because this idea of like a mad artist in that style doing a gay couple getting married. I don't know. It just, it, it pinged a lot of boxes for me. Um, well, it was one of the most amazing things is, and Sam Bibiano did a thing and Al Jaffe did a thing. Sam Bibiano was the art director for Mad for like 18 years. Um, and the whole thing was emotional because at one point, I said to John, John Ficarra, uh was editor back then, uh, and Nick, I think, had already passed on. And I said, John, Dennis and I are going to get married. I get emotional. John jumped up and he said, oh, my God, I can't believe it. I can't believe it. Can I be there? I said, John, we're getting married at City Hall. And they told me that 
It might be 10 minutes or it might be three hours because they don't know how many people are coming each particular day. And right. said, I don't care. I just want to be there. I said, well, you'll, you'll be the best man because only, only one other person that we know is coming. Um, so after John came and he did a little video of it, which is on YouTube also, uh, uh, Dick marries Dennis Wonderland. Um, and I, I said, you know what? We already decided that we would then take a, a cab back to MAD and announce to the staff, guess who just got married? And so we came out of uh, the city hall and John said, you know, I would have gotten a limo. He said, but since you had no time frame of when we, he said, but we'll take a cab up. And I said, well, you know what? Let me run into the bakery downstairs and, and get some. He said, you know, just, we'll just go up and announce that you're getting, you got married. And I thought, oh, okay. And I went up and they had champagne and they oh, had, wow. they had sandwiches and a lot of the mad guys were there. And you know, the mad guys don't go in. Everybody faxes in or send it. Um, and it was a great party. And I said to John, isn't alcohol not allowed? At Time Warner, he goes, yeah, but they won't know. Um, so it was a wonderful thing. And then, you know, Sam had done that thing. Jaffe had done something for me. Yeah, that illustration. Thought, amazing. What an amazing thing. An amazing thing. Where did you meet your husband? Um, um, at the gym. We've been working out for probably more than a year. Just hello, hello, hello. And one... We met indirectly because of MAD. One day I was in Bill, in 1980, September 1980. I'm in Bill's office and we're BSing around. And the phone rings and Bill says, hang on, I'll find out. So he puts his hand over the phone and he says, um, it's CBS News. Is Alfred E. running, Alfred E. Newman running for president? What should I tell them? I said, tell them not only is he running for president? But you happen to be sitting in the office with his campaign manager who will gladly do an interview. So Bill Good says that. He said, you know, oh, you know, his campaign manager here is here. Can you be here Friday? I said, yeah. He said, okay. So they came up and um, I did, a, you know, just a stupid interview, you know. But you were the campaign uh, manager. Yeah, yes, yes. I said, tell us about Alfred's campaign. I said, well, his platform is amazing. I said, it's eight by 10 and it's teak. So it's prettier than any other platform of any of the other people. And I said, and he thinks he's going to vote a, a win because, I mean, he's already voted at least 20 times and he <laughs> will continue voting for the entire. And it was just like that. So anyway, it was um, on a mag, I think a local show called 730 Magazine on CBS. Um, and Dennis saw this. And the next day he said, oh, my God, you, you work for Med? I go, yeah. And he says, oh, I was always afraid to say more to you than hello. But my God, I can't believe I love Med. Can we have a lunch one day? And I said, uh, Absolutely. And from there, it, now we're together for since 1980. Amazing. Incredible. Was it 
were you out in the office? Was it kind of a common thing, or what was the no, what no. was it like the thing, the in thing. like Match Game and and uh, Mad in in the, at that time? Yeah, no, you know, I never knew. Uh, I mean, I never showed up with a woman, to, right. you know, to hide anything. Uh, and the time that I suddenly realized Bill knew exactly what was going on was early on. It was a Friday. And I said, Bill, have a great weekend and give Annie my best. And he said, you have a great weekend and you tell Dennis have his best. And I thought, oh, my God. He, he put us together. Yeah. Yeah. We're, yeah. We're together. And then there was a trip where there was a. A place up the Hudson where they had great brunches. And I said, Bill, you and Annie and Dennis and I have to go up there because the brunches are astounding. And we all went up there. And a couple of days later, Bill said, guess where the Christmas party is? And I said, where? And he said, Hudson House. He said, I rented the whole building. And he said, I rented another place because it's going to be 30 of us and Hudson House just has room for 20. And he said, but I have to ask you and Dennis a favor. Can you, I'm going to put you guys in um, a room next to Annie and I. He said, because for some, the hotel is very oddly built and we have to walk through your bedroom to get to the bathroom. <laughs> and, and you're the only two guys that I can impose on because I know you'll say, okay. Uh, and he said, it's a great room. I said, yeah, that would be great, Billy. So. Anyway. So you guys, yeah, it was kind of like a slumber party. Uh, yeah, exactly. With everybody exactly. together. What about in the match game world? Where, was, was that a, were you, you know able what? to I never, out in that world? You know what? I guess it was one of those things where you, you knew, because back then there was one guy on staff, I think, had, uh, used to do some touch up with makeup, an older guy. I, uh, even then I would bring Dennis everywhere. Yeah. I remember Someone said, you want to go to Studio 54? And I said, I- I'd love to. I said, I'm not standing on any line. And they go, a line? You work for Goodson Todman. There's no line. We, I said, oh. Right, you're go. somebody. I love yeah, that. Yeah. And so we all went together and God, right through the velvet rope. We did it a couple times. And then they started... Uh, Gay Sunday at Studio 54. And fortunately, uh, the same guys at the rope were there. So they knew my face. So I could just walk right in. What's your most vivid memory of Studio 54? God, I, I, well, first of all, a couple of celebrities. I saw uh, Tony Curtis, but I think he was high. <laughs> I, I, just, I just like the... Uh, the showbiz background, you know, they had a, a moving platform that you could be on and it would ride over the top of the dances. Amazing. And they had incredible chandeliers that would go up and down and the chandeliers would have to go all the way up. So the bridge could go from one end to the other and people could look down on the dances. Then the chandeliers would come back down again. Otherwise the bridge would run into the chandeliers and they were, it, it was very cleverly done. And because it was a stage, uh, they had lots of curtains and, and they made, they always made it a mystery. There's always a line. So I used to go very early on Sunday because I didn't like crowds. 
they, they, they would, it would be roped off and you would go in and there would be nine people there. No, it always, it, it always looked like it was crowded inside. Um, and they would just put down almost all the curtains. So you were dancing in a rather small area. And as more people came, they would lift the curtain and make the place bigger and bigger. I, I, I love Studio 54. Yeah. I thought it was great. The physical space sounds amazing. Uh, was it sexy that time? God. In my mind, it was. No, I, I look up to it and go, oh, that would have been so hot. Well, there were the fact that you might see famous people there. Yeah. I mean, everybody and, and the 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 uh, bartenders and, and the, the wait staff wore many, many uh, shorts. Yeah. You know, that that was very uh, provocative. Um, I, I don't think. Maybe there were rooms where people had sex. Yeah. Um, uh, I, I did not see any of that. Interesting. I gather from just reading your stories about Match Game and Mad Magazine that you succeeded there because you were funny and talented, but you had other qualities, I felt like. Like you would appear on camera if they needed somebody. Or I got the feeling like you were really good at doing the things that you were doing. What are the other qualities apart from just your writing talent that helped you succeed in these worlds? Um, well, ha- having a sense of humor. I remember once on the original match game, no one was getting any matches. And during the commercial, Gene said, Dick, come on camera, do anything. We're dying here. Um, and so when we went back on camera, um, he asked a question. I said, uh, excuse me. I, I just walked out on, and I said, you know what? I'm playing golf backstage. Did a ball go through here? So you came out and, and just did a bit. Yeah. Improvised yes. bit that had nothing yeah. to do with the show. No, no. And, and, and then I said, you're supposed to be backstage. I'm the talent here. You get back. Um, Goodson, would go through the ceiling when that would happen. He hated when you would do bets. He did it. He would call Gene. Even if Gene was extra funny with contestants, he would go, this is a game show, not a comedy show. You read the questions, you get the answers. Fortunately, he started to realize with the funny questions that the laughs were helping the show. And of course, with the L.A. version, it was the questions were almost secondary. It was like a uh, cocktail party where maybe there was yes, a game. Yes, um, yes. And, and, and that, when you said that, someone, Charles Nelson Riley said, he, he's constantly asked, is it fun being on the match game? And he said, my answer is, imagine this. You go to a cocktail party. You have a lot of laughs. You have a lot of fun. You have food, you have drink, and as you leave, they hand you a check. That's what being on Match Game is like. All right, that was part one of my interview with Dick DiBartolo. You can find him on Facebook and follow him there. You could also maybe track down his book, Good Days and Mad. Uh, it, it's, it's been out for a number of years, but you may still be able to find it. I loved it. All right, so this happened... I went to see the Taylor Swift movie. Uh, you know, I talk about her a fair amount that I really wanted to go to that concert. I'm a fan. And I went with my friends Penelope and Matt. 
and it was exciting to be there. There was a super fan next to us, and no friendship bracelets were exchanged that I saw, but people dressed up, and I don't know. I think what I liked about it, apart from having my favorite songs and all of this stuff, is thinking about her is that, like, I was watching her going, you know what? She believes in herself. Is she the greatest vocalist? No. Is she the greatest dancer? No. But she believes in herself, and you could feel it, and I think... It inspires her fans to believe in themselves, too. I think that's part of her appeal. Also, I want to defend her dancing a little bit because she gets criticized for it. I think she moves great for somebody that's not a trained dancer. She can hit an accent, that's for sure, and she's into it. And she knows that it's kind of like dancing around your bedroom at a slumber party kind of movement, but she's in it. Like, I, I love watching the way she moves. And, man, when she needs to hit an accent, she can hit it, and you feel it. And I also think she's a sexy walker. I said it. So I came home from uh, watching the Taylor Swift movie, and I was reading all of the tweets and stuff about the Madonna show, which is coming up. I already have my tickets. So I came home from the Taylor Swift tour, and I noticed on Facebook an old friend of mine had sort of written this long takedown of Taylor Swift. And I was like, ugh, whatever. I'm not even going to engage. Um, and then I was reading in Atlantic Magazine a review of a new biography about Madonna. And the sonic youth artist, Kim Gordon, is quoted, uh, this famous quote of hers is brought up in this in this review, the quote, people will pay to see others believe in themselves. Um, Kim Gordon thought that was the appeal of live, live music. And, she, and that quote was used in reference to Madonna. So I was thinking about that, and I think that's true. Like, we want to see that. We want to see the belief. Um, I don't know, I just like the through line of, uh, the two different pop stars from the different eras and that idea. I've also been listening to the Britney book. I'm about halfway through it. I think it's really good. It's not overly long. It, she doesn't go into a ton of detail, but you get a feel for her. And uh, I think it's honest. And uh, you feel for her. And it's interesting. And uh, Michelle Williams is doing the audio. She does a great job. It's fun to hear her imitate Justin Timberlake trying to be black. So it's like a... <laughs> It's, uh, yeah, as John Lovett said on his podcast, it's a white girl imitating a white girl imitating a white guy, <laughs> imitating a black guy. Anyway, um, I'm into all of my divas is the point. Oh, I also want to mention this other great article I read about Taylor Swift uh, in the New York Times. It's by Taffy Brodesser Ackner, and the title is My Delirious Trip to the Heart of Swiftydom. It's really good. It's really interesting. It's funny, but it really kind of... I think captures her odyssey and also her appeal. Um, all right, that's enough for this week. We're going to have part two with Dick next week. Thank you for listening. I want to give a shout out to Oscar Rosario for mixing the episodes. My theme music is by Mark Danos for placement music. We'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye. Bye.